You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host, Stuart Blues, and I have a special guest joining me for this episode. He's a writer, broadcaster, and playwright. He's very kindly joining me today to discuss the murder of Muriel Mackay, as detailed in his new book, A Desperate Business, The Murder of Muriel Mackay. I like the subtitle. Fills it in nicely. Please welcome to the show, Simon Farquhar. Hello. I am saying your surname right there, aren't I? You, uh, yeah, it's like, it's like Parker with an F. Is the easiest Parker, Farquhar. Okay. It's a Scottish name. I meant to ask you before. It's Scottish, is it? Yes. It means very dear one in Scots. Okay. Decide how accurate that is, but uh, yeah. What we're going to do before we get into it, Simon, is I've got a bit of an icebreaker question for you. It's nothing to get the brain working too much, but seeing as though you're a playwright, successful one, is there a play out there that you wish you would have written? Yes, actually. Yes. Um, I can think of several, actually. What would I say? I think I would like to have written Closer by Patrick Marber, which is one of my favourite plays. Closer was written in the 90s. There was quite a successful film of it made in the early 2000s with Jude Law and uh, Clive Owen. I saw it actually on stage again just a few months ago at the Lyric in Hammersmith. I think that play is a, a little masterpiece of the worst side of what happens when people come together in relationships. It's about toxic masculinity and it's about manipulation and about flailing around trying to find trying to find comfort in a meaningless world i suppose but it's it's an electrifying play when it's done well it really is special and it's so tight so full of wonderful moments so yeah i think i'd quite like to have put the name to that closer i'll have to look into that i'm not much of a player guy i must admit looking at the film the film's great the film's film's very good early 2000s jude law yeah okay i'll look into that how do you get into writing plays is that something have you always been into literature and english yeah, I was always wanted to be a writer right from childhood, really. And uh, I was always kind of scribbling stuff and everything. And then when I was at university, I uh, was in the drama society there. And there used to be a, a sort of local festival where you could put on one act plays and they were judged and, you know, had a sort of professional adjudicator come along. And although there were lots of one act plays done by people which were sort of published ones, there was an opportunity to just to write your own. And I did a couple of those and they went quite well. And then one of them got published and uh, it sort of went from there. Really. I, I got my first break on radio. Radio drama was always a good place, you know, as a sort of nursery slope into writing. Uh, and then from there I did, I had a stage play on at the Royal Court in London, which did quite well. And that traveled around a bit and stuff but I sort of fell out, fell out of love with the theatre a little bit I mean I've done things in the theatre since but I don't know I've never I love the collaboration I love working with actors and I love seeing how a work develops and you know what happens when a cast breathes life into it and so on but I sort of felt I don't know I don't feel quite the same calling I, I love writing books I just love I've, I've done a lot of journalism I've made documentaries and things like that, but I'm a lot of journalism and I just love fashioning words around. I like the freedom of writing books and there's something a bit longer lasting as well about it. I mean, the, one of the beauties of a play is the fact that it's the moment is gone. It was there and then it's gone, you know, and that's magical and that's exciting, but it is nice to sometimes think that something is being, you know, that you're leaving something behind. 
Is it more liber not liberating, but do you feel more restricted writing a play because there's other people involved versus if you're writing a book, it's yourself? I don't think so. I think it depends. There are certain things when you're writing plays, there are certain rules that you sort of adhere to and stuff, and you're obviously limited by it. I mean, one of the fun things about theatre is that you are limited. You know, you've, you've only got a limited amount of space. You can only do so much. You can change scenes and that sort of thing. But I always find that some sort of limitation is always good anyway. I think sometimes in theatre you're a bit limited in terms of you are conscious that no one's going to commission this. You know, I mean, I wrote a play um, about six or seven years ago now, which was about an elderly vicar, and it was it was a it was a pretty strong piece of work, and it had quite a lot of explicit content in it. But it's very very hard to get a theatre to put on a play about a rural vicar these days because whatever else is going on in it, that does look like something which is not particularly tapping into the problems and concerns of Britain today. In fact, it was a piece about written today but you know so you know theatre has to be good new writing has to be about now and has to be immediate it has to be challenging I think also as you get a bit older you're a little bit less about challenging and more about reflecting I think when you're young you do tend to want to rip everything up and you want to shock people and that's a very easy way to make an impact and then as you get older you you, I don't know you just get a bit more reflexive you think I don't really want to change the world I want to try and understand it Mm. That makes sense. What was the transition like going from plays into books then? What was the first thing you were looking to write? Well, it was I had a it was a strange thing that happened actually which led into into writing books and writing about crime actually. I'd always been really interested in crime because my my late father was a was a policeman and a a very successful policeman, and a quite a celebrated one. So I'd always come from a sort of police family. It's a bit like coming from a family of doctors or a or an army family or something, you, you sort of tap into that a little bit, you know, but um, what happened was that my, my dad died in 2013. And at the time I was writing for the independent, I was writing obituaries for the independent. And there was a TV presenter called Shaw Taylor, who in the seventies and eighties used to present a show called police five, which was a, an appeal show where they appealed for witnesses to unsolved crimes. It's a sort of precursor of crime watch. Yeah. And, my dad went on that show once when he was running a very high-profile murder inquiry in the 80s. He was, uh, he was dealing with a serial killer case called the Railway Murders. And um, I remember watching that program where he was on there at the time being interviewed standing at the crime scene and stuff like that. And so when Shaw Taylor died, I said, oh, I'll, I'll do Shaw Taylor's obituary if you like. And when it came out, I pinned it on Facebook and I said underneath it that the connection that my dad had worked with him once and all. And I said that my dad took over the railway murders and was told to close it down because there was no evidence and the inquiry was costing a lot of money. And he refused to close it down and he managed to get it turned into an enormous manhunt, the biggest manhunt since the Yorkshire Ripper, which led to two men doing life. You know, And uh, I posted this and a publisher that I knew vaguely uh, messaged me and said, this is fascinating. You should do a book about this. Really thought about it, and then he took me out for a drink and said, "I, I want to talk about this." and And I realised that I'd actually got a, quite an interesting vantage point into this case. Growing up, I, it was a big news story, and I was I followed it very closely. And obviously, it was my my dad's last case before he retired. And so after he'd retired, he he tended to talk a little bit more about his work. And so I knew quite a bit. And he said, "I think I think there's a book in this, you know." So I accepted the offer because it was a chance to. Pay tribute to my father, but also to understand who he was as a working man, you know, and talk to his colleagues and all that sort of thing. And and as soon as I started to do this and started to research it, it became an extraordinary journey, a very emotional journey and very compelling. 
you know, visiting all those crime scenes that I'd seen on news reports and that sort of thing and talking to victims' families or whatever. And the whole thing was a very, very surprising and, and powerful experience. And so I made the transition then into into writing. I mean, it's not a very big leap from being a journalist to writing to books or particularly to writing factual books, but I'd come, you know, quite a lot from quite a far away starting point. But uh, so there it was. Is there much of a moral difference between writing a true crime book, visiting the families, visiting the sites, versus journalism, which sometimes can be sensationalised, especially the 80s and 90s, the way reporting was back then for the headline and there was, you know, old style terms used and stuff. Morally, is writing a book more wholesome, I suppose? Yes, I think... I think maybe what was what was relevant to that was the fact that I didn't come from the journalistic background of knocking on doors and doorstepping people. I came from a journalistic background of writing features and writing obituaries and stuff. And obviously writing obituaries, you are dealing often with families of recently bereaved people and stuff like that. And you're trying to, you know, trying to put an account which is honest but sensitive. I mean, you don't want to write, you know, obituaries are not supposed to be adverts for lives. They're not supposed to be just selling people's good points. They're meant to be even-handed and balanced. But you obviously want to write them in a fairly respectful you know sort of and fair way so in that sense it wasn't too much of a leap but i certainly with the book about the railway murders dangerous place and with this book both of those cases have very much involved looking at press coverage at the time the press played very big roles in both those cases and so yeah you do kind of wince at some of the some of the behaviors and some of the terminology and that sort of thing but i think the main thing to always keep in, the, in your mind over this is that you want to keep the victim at the front and centre of this and you want to keep the perpetrators in their right place. I mean, obviously you've got to talk about them, you know, they're obviously the hugely important part of the story, but you've, you've got to keep them in the right place there. And there are all sorts of decisions, even down to what goes on a cover of a book and stuff, which make clear what the focus is of that sort of thing. I mean, there are ways that you do it to try and make sure that if you keep the victim at the forefront, then you're always going to be fairly certain that you're going to be writing a respectful and compassionate account of something because it's about you know, it's about a loss rather than it's about what someone appallingly gained from it. So, but yeah, you do have to make those decisions. But sometimes you can actually just look at, you know, things like press coverage at the time as an example of how not to do things particularly as well. It makes sense then how you pick the railway murders for a book with a connection with your dad. How did you come on to choose in the Muriel Mackay story? Yeah, well, it's, it's quite an interesting story, actually. What happened was that in the mid-1980s, so this case took place in 1969, 1970, and was at that time a very, very famous case. That was before I was born. In the mid-1980s, my dad was working on a really horrific murder case, and he managed to get a conviction for murder without a body being found, which wasn't unique at that time, but it was unusual and it was newsworthy. And it evoked a lot of memories of the Mackay case because Muriel Mackay has never been found. Nobody knows what happened to her. And because it evoked memories of that case, I sort of asked about it. At that time, there was nothing in print about it at all. But my dad told me the sort of gist of it. And then I found an account of it in uh, a book that was on sale at the time by Gordon Honeycomb called The Murders of the Black Museum. And there's quite a concise but fairly decent account of it in there. And funnily enough, even now, on the other side of a sea of research that I've done, I've been three years on this book. I can still see in my head the sort of images that that first account that I read of this case conjured up in my mind of this eerie tumble down farmhouse in the countryside, these frightening phone calls made from call boxes and the mystery of what happened to this poor woman. And also 
the fact that a woman could be sitting by the fire reading a newspaper and then suddenly be taken away and plunged into oblivion. And it's a very, very frightening story. Also, it happened not that far from where I grew up because I lived in Essex and this took place on the Essex-Hertfordshire borders. So, so it, it was always of interest to me. And anyway, time went on down the line. And after I'd done A Dangerous Place, publishers wanted me to, to look at another case, do another book. And I instantly said, I'd love to have a look at the Mackay case. And they said, we've actually just commissioned a book on that. And I was like, oh, no, <laughs> first book in 40 years on it. And I thought, I can't believe it. Anyway, six months went by and then I said, oh, how's the Mackay book looking? They said, it's been dropped. And I said, why? And they said, well, there's no new information. Lots of people are dead. All the files are closed. There's, you know, no one's talking. All it would be is just a regurgitation of the what's known. And I said, oh, look, let me have a look. I'm sure I just really do. I, I want, you know, there's a, maybe there's an open goal here, but I really want to have a, have, a, have a look at this. So I did. And I thought... While one of the two killers was still alive, Arthur Hussain is dead, but Nizamuddin Hussain is alive and he lives back in Trinidad. He was released from prison in 1990. I couldn't believe that while he was still alive, there was not some hope of putting a full stop at the end of this. And you sort of feel, without being too pretentious, you feel a sort of duty to history because you think in 20 years time, someone could turn around and say, why did no one have another look at the Mackay case while people were still alive? You know, Imagine if we'd done that 50 years after Riddington Place or Jack the Ripper or something, just got everybody who was sort of alive to just, you know, have their final sort of word on it. And then I managed to look at some of the files that had been closed for years and years. And the first one I looked at, I thought, there's a new book to be done here. There's a huge amount of information which has never been put in the public domain before, which casts a really interesting new dimension on this story. And that was enough to get it commissioned, actually. So, yeah, that's where it started from. What sort of files are you referring to? Are these stuff that's been hidden from public view then in the police files? or Yeah, so talking about police files, director of public prosecutions files, home office files, that sort of thing. So in any murder case, any sensitive case, files will be closed for a number of years to protect people who are still alive. And they can be closed for various lengths of time. Sometimes they'll be closed for 100 years. Legally, a person is presumed dead 100 years after they were they were born. So, for example, there are some files in the Mackay case which are closed until 2062. And the reason for that will be because Arthur Hussain's children, uh, his youngest child, was born in 1962. So while he's still alive, that stuff is not going to the public domain to protect him and his own mental health and that sort of thing. You know, There are other files where the information will be about people who were probably at about 50 at the time. So therefore, they'll put a 50-year rule and stuff like that. Anybody can go along and challenge that and put a request in for under freedom of information and put a case and then the assessors will look at it. And sometimes they might say, we're going to open some of this up, but we're going to redact some of it because that person might still be around and so on. So you do have to do quite a lot of horse trading with that. One of the disasters I had with this was that um, when the pandemic hit, all the archives were closed. And so I decided to use that time to put in a request to have those 100-year files opened and it was refused. But unfortunately... Having looked again, they decided to then reclose all of them. And I said, oh, come on, you can't do this. I'm halfway through a book here. I've only been through half of them. And they said, no, they, they shouldn't have been opened in the first place. So they then followed a nine-month period of trying to put a case for that. I mean, obviously, I had seen quite a lot of stuff in them already. And I said, what do I do about that? And they said, well, there's nothing we can do to stop you from publishing that because it was in the public domain when you looked at it. And I said, I did actually think that some of it, were, I was quite surprised, was open. And I was always going to be very careful about what I put in and whose names I put in and all that. Nobody is named in this that 
that is still alive without their permission in this book. I've been through everybody that I could you know, track down and be assured that they were dead or whatever. But that is a, a huge battle in itself to get that sort of information out there. How easy or difficult is it to track someone down from... Because I know that uh, Muriel from Australia originally, they've got Australian connections and the case is over 50 years old. It must be quite difficult to track down relatives and stuff. It is. It's easier now than it was at one time because there's all sorts of ways that people leave digital traces around themselves and you have access online to all sorts of all sorts of things, all sorts of resources for that. Sometimes you just get lucky with things as well. And sometimes you think you found someone and all the detail, all the incidental details fit and it turns out not to be them at all. And you think, my God, who'd have thought there'd be two people with the same name <laughs> who appeared to be, you know, living the same sort of area or the same lifestyle or whatever. But there are some people that you just reach the end you just think i just cannot i just have to give up on this now sometimes it's difficult as well if you want to do a public appeal with someone because you don't want to expose them in public to be connected with something that they really might not want to be connected with that's difficult one little trick that i'd found which i don't know if i actually did need to use it in this project but i've done before is sometimes if you're using newspapers if you say to newspaper i'm trying to find somebody a local paper you know i'm trying to find someone who you know finding all that sort of stuff. one thing that can be quite useful is to actually pretend to know a lot less than you do know so for instance there was there was something i was doing a while ago and i was trying to find someone who had vanished off the face of the earth and i did know that she was dead she died in 2001 but i wanted to know about her life so the local paper ran a piece and i said for all i know she's still alive somewhere what happens then is that people contact you and say just to let you know she's actually dead and then they start telling you more stuff whereas if you actually say I know this person's dead, but if anyone's got any information about their life, people don't think they've got anything useful, so they just don't bother. So yeah. you want to prompt someone into telling you something, and then it opens up a conversation. But obviously luck comes into it a fair degree. You also help by things like if people made police statements at the time, they're normally things like their middle name and their date of birth are on there, and that's hugely useful when you're going through ancestry and birth certificates and checking against you know, death records and that sort of thing. So there's all sorts of things. It's just something that you just... You just have to have a lot of hunches for, really. You know? How long was the writing process in total? Well, the the actual research and from from starting off until until finally it going to the printers was three years, almost exactly three years. Obviously, it was delayed by a year because of the pandemic, but it was just as well, really, because there were extraordinary new developments in the Mackay case at the end of last year. And if the book had come out when intended, it would have instantly have been dated. The actual writing itself probably. Probably about six months or something, I suppose, at that time. I mean, you're always writing along the way and scribbling things and all that. So when it comes to writing, what you're really doing is sewing it all together. But yeah, probably six or eight months for the actual writing. Do you find it difficult to remain as, as interested as you did at the start, two and a half, three years down the line, versus say you're working for a paper and you've got a deadline of a few days, then you have to get it out and then you're on to the next story. It must be quite difficult to have that drive for so many years it's a very interesting question actually and the, the truth of it is no it was very easy to keep interest in it because you you can't really embark on something like this unless you've got a sort of obsession with it in some way you know you, you know you're playing you're going in for the long game here and when it gets under your skin and you're thinking about it morning noon and night and you've got so much to try and wrestle with so much information to try and make sense of i mean when i started this there was the whole thing just looked such a bizarre mess i mean there's so many unanswered questions and so many implausibilities in it and you, you know you've got your chart that you've drawn up with information on your plotting thing you think but well, this just 
this is all just nonsense. None of this makes sense. How could they have been there and then there and all this sort of stuff? And then, so you've got so much to get your teeth into. And so all the time that you're on a train or you're walking or something like that, you're thinking, yeah, but how did that? And then suddenly you know, a little penny will drop and you'll think, oh, okay. So it's a constant process of challenging and questioning and so on. And of course, along the way as well, you're always getting sort of revved up again by things like an email will suddenly drop into the inbox. You know, you get up one morning and there's an email from that person you've been trying to find for ages saying, yeah, I'm happy to talk to you and all that. So your adrenaline is constantly being fizzed by it by things like that so it's quite easy also i remember when i did the railway murders book that was a very tight turnaround with that and that book was done i think about eight months or something and what actually happened with that was that once that book was out there it had a very big afterlife because as well as the usual things that happen after a book comes out you, know, you do interviews you do things like this whatever i also i did get a lot of contact from people afterwards who wrote to me saying things like i think i may have been a victim of those two men as well and all that sort of stuff so you're having to deal with that you know you have to be aware that you are potentially going to be put in a position where you do have to deal with some quite difficult situations like that and also you find it very hard to let go because it's been such an all-consuming part of you for a while so it just goes on and on so with this i was kind of very aware that however long it took it was the light wasn't going to dim it was just going to get more and more intense as it went on really okay I thought I read an article, I don't know if it led to anything, but the the youngest brother, Nizamuddin, was it last year the development you're referring to that he said he, he knew where Muriel's body was? Yes. yes did that lead right. to anything? No, it didn't. Well, it did and it didn't. So what happened was um, that I had always felt that one of the things that, that this book had to have, if it was going to be in any way some sort of justifiable um, sort of update on this, was to actually, have an, was to actually interview Nizamuddin. And I had located him to where he was living and was thinking about how best to approach this. And a documentary team got in touch with me and said we would quite like to, they'd heard about what was happening, they said we would quite like to chart your progress on this and all that. And that was all looking really promising. And then we discovered that Sky had in in production a documentary about the case, which they'd been working on, and they had secured an interview with Nizamuddin. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, that's completely unexpected. And, you know, wow. So uh, what happened was that documentary was broadcast last summer. And uh, it didn't get very much out of him. He just protested his innocence and said that he was an innocent victim in all this. I mean, it was a bit ridiculous, actually. You know, I mean, He was denying stuff that he'd even admitted at the time. And I watched it and thought, well, I don't feel that my thunder's been too stolen on this, but there's still a lot of things I'd quite like to ask him and stuff. But the Mackay family, who had assumed that he was long dead, were kind of stunned that he had appeared here. So they decided while he was alive, there was a chance of them finally getting some answers. So they employed a solicitor out in Trinidad to become, to befriend him and see if he could get somewhere. And he did get him to finally admit his involvement in the case. That alone was an extraordinary achievement. It's incredible. But then he made this confession about how she died and where he buried her. And at this point, the family obviously wanted the police to act on this information. He said that she was buried at Rook's Farm, where they lived at the time, where she was held hostage. His account of what had happened, I knew could not be accurate because of the amount of information I had about the comings and goings of that time. None of it made sense. But whether or not the surrounding details were accurate, you know, he was giving them a location. So the family 
asked the police to look into this and a cold case team then did go and dig up that site and they didn't find anything. So it didn't surprise me. He's a very manipulative man who I think just enjoys manipulating the media and so on and so forth. But it started, it sort of reopened this with the family and they then decided to start, you know, having more and more conversations with him. And having a conversation with him is not an easy or very pleasant experience. But eventually they asked if I would speak to him because I'd done you know, a lot of research and could maybe call out his lies and try and corner him a little bit into saying more. So, and that was very handy for me because I'd always intended to talk to him anyway. So then I did that. And I, an interesting thing about interviewing him was that he is always, he has a, he puts on a performance of being a kind of an innocent in all this and so on and so forth. And when he was at the Old Bailey in 1970, his narrative was that his brother dominated him. He was terrified of his brother. He just did as he was told. And the jury actually pretty much went for this. And although he got life for murder, the jury did ask for clemency in his case. The judge wouldn't accept it. He got, he got a full sentence. And there was a, a guy called William Cooper who watched the trial. He wrote an account of the trial. And he was fascinated by Nizamuddin and watched him intently through the trial. And he said, I think this is all a performance, but a performance so skillful as to be almost touching. And that's exactly what he's done all these years. But the strange thing was that when he and I came face to face, he absolutely hated me on sight. And it was the best thing that could have happened because the one thing he didn't do was to try and do this kind of usual kind of masquerade of being this sort of innocent. It was actually quite an aggressive conversation. So I was able to sort of, you know, say to him, right, we know that that's not true because of this. So let's try again, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, you know, he, he got pretty shirty about it, but at least... At least we didn't waste lots and lots of time with that usual kind of performance. You know, the mask was kind of dropped. And I mean, I really did think he was, I mean, he was just hollow, he was just empty. And I said to him at one point, I sort of thought that if I asked him completely open questions, as you normally would in these situations, you were giving him a license to just talk any old nonsense. If you asked him completely closed questions, he would just deny it. So I sort of devised these kind of Hobson's choice questions where whichever answer he gave would potentially throw some light. So I said to him, for example, did Arthur plan the kidnapping entirely by himself or was it both of you? He said it was just Arthur. But what he didn't say was, well, no, there was Arthur and someone else because there'd been rumours about a third person being involved. Sort of thing. And at one point I was pretty exasperated and I said, you know, why are you making this so difficult for the family? Is it because you're ashamed? Is it, is it because you don't care or is it because you're ashamed? And he sort of erupted, I'm not ashamed, I'm not ashamed of anything. And I thought, you just don't care then, do you? you know? So it was a kind of an insight into someone who had you know, kind of been presenting himself to the world. And see, what, what really angered me was the fact that that confession he made in December, which was such a genteel account of it, he said that she, he befriended her, they chatted like mother and son, uh, she dropped dead of a heart attack and he buried her. That version of events, none of which could have happened, was the version that was now in the media. So he was controlling that narrative. And if you Googled the case, you would see that and think, oh, so that's what happened in the end. Well, at least he didn't treat it madly or anything. And I thought, well, that's mm. really, that's awful. You know, he's really still winning on this, isn't he? Making the world think that he's the, you know, he was almost the hero of this, which is just not right. What's it like stepping into a room with someone who basically both believe that he and his brother killed this woman? Well, thankfully, I didn't have to step into a literal room. It was done on Zoom, actually. All oh, right, okay, <laughs> that's, that's as, okay then. <laughs> I probably wouldn't have been as rude. To, it was still pretty horrible, though. I mean, I still probably wouldn't have been quite as rude to him if I'd been there in person. I mean, I'd already, <laughs> and I'd already, I'd always intended to try and get into that room with him at some point when I was sort of going alone on this. And I mean, you know, he he lives in a pretty 
a pretty frightening area of Trinidad, and you know there were there were all sorts of all sorts of things that go along with that. And I know that you know they had. To, I mean, at one point when one of the legal people went to see them, they had to have an armed guard with them and stuff. It's it's you know it's a dangerous place. So I was pretty relieved at that. But um, what sticks in my mind about it was that suddenly there he was. He was a face from true crime encyclopedias and magazines and newspapers and suddenly there he was you know looking at me and you could see through the years the ravaged features he has from drink and drugs and everything you could still see him there and that that, that is quite chilling particularly because he was really pretty hostile as well it was quite chilling but a, a couple of things i can say about that one was there was a really bizarre moment a really spine-tingling moment the first part of the meeting with him a couple of members of the family were there as well and when questions started to get a bit difficult, they were pinning him down about whether or not she really was where he'd said or in that vicinity or whatever. And he suddenly started complaining he was feeling unwell and he was taken off to the bathroom. And then he came back and he came back into the room and he sunk down into his chair and he put his head back, right back, and just closed his eyes and was completely motionless. And we were all sort of looking at this and I suddenly noticed there were little tears just coming down his cheeks. And I thought, my God, this is it. This is the moment. He's broken. You know, he's he's going to finally come. He's honestly thought at that moment that's what was going to happen. And in fact, nothing happened. And he just sat there motionless for what seemed like an eternity. And then the guy in the room, Slister, started banging something in his ear to try and get him a reaction. And there was just no reaction at all. He was, it was catatonic, completely closed off. From It was extraordinary. And we were watching this for about 10 minutes. And I suddenly said, you know what this actually is? This is an exact reenactment of how he behaved at Kingston Police Station when he was arrested in 1970. The police officers described it as as soon as the questions got difficult, he went into a sort of trance and was completely motionless. And it was the same thing all over again. I mean, I think there's probably sort of borderline schizophrenia there or something anyway, but it was absolutely bizarre. Anyway, then he was taken away and said he wanted to lie down and stuff. And when he came back, the family had gone and they said, look, we have been through every possible horrible possibility in our head. So ask whatever you like, you know. And um, I was still talking to him at midnight British time there and it was exhausting. But at the end of it, there were there were some interesting moments on it. There's a chapter obviously about that. But at the time that it happened, things were so frantic here with I had to get a, an extension on the book because I said, look, finally got a chance to do this interview and the rest of it. And once that was done, it was a case of writing it up, getting the rest of it done. And there wasn't really time to draw breath. And it wasn't until really maybe a few weeks later that it suddenly began to sink in just what a what an unpleasant experience that was. You know, I, I don't ever want to have to do that again. It was really, really horrible. And you could still hear in your head certain moments where he'd been quite hostile and said certain things, you know. And it was funny because at the start of it, I prepared a couple of icebreakers, which I thought might of value and in fact they didn't work they in a strange way they did work because they revealed that he was much more switched on than he was letting on he knew that he was being manipulated a little bit but they made him very angry and you don't really want a murderer getting angry with you obviously you know even at a distance you know it's it's, it's not very nice so yeah there, it was it was it was horrible it was it was eerie very eerie i'd be petrified if that was uh as that was me conducting that interview, I think I'd bab my pants. I won't have my video on, I don't think. I'd just do the audio. <laughs> the story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. 
for the benefit of my listeners, now you obviously know the story inside out like the back of your hand. I've been researching it. For the sake of my audience who may not know about this case, are you able to just run through a very high-level overview of the procedure of events that happened? Sure. I'll tell you what was always known about the case. So this was this was what you know. This was the, the basic one paragraph thing about it, which was, I think this is the way that I would choose to start it. So in 1969, Rupert Murdoch arrived in Britain and bought the Sun and the News of the World and made a very very immediate and very powerful impact on British culture. In the autumn of 1969, he decided to serialise the memoirs of Christine Keeler, who had been in the news six years earlier for having an affair with the Minister for War, Jack Profumo. And the public didn't really warm to this idea, particularly what Murdoch called the establishment. And Murdoch got quite a hard time about this. This was very tawdry. Why are you bringing this up again? And so on. So Murdoch decided to go on to the David Frost program and defend himself. And he fared very badly on that program. He was interviewed as a you know millionaire who was now taking over these newspapers and so on. And he didn't defend himself terribly well. But that program was watched by Arthur and Nizamuddin Hussain. And they decided, because Murdoch had mentioned not only how wealthy he was, but that he had a wife, they decided to kidnap his wife and demand a £1 million ransom for her. £1 million at that time is the equivalent of £18 today. So we're talking, I don't think even Murdoch would have had that sort of money then. It's a ludicrous figure. So they decided to find out where Murdoch lived, and it was simply a case of finding the house and then kidnapping his wife. And they found it very difficult to find out where he lived. And eventually they resorted to driving to the News of the World offices where they saw Murdoch's Rolls Royce. So they went to the vehicle licensing department of the Great London Council and said, can you tell us the address of the owner of this car? Because we've had an accident with it. We want to speak to the owner. And they said, no, we can't. We All we can tell you is it belongs to the News of the World. So they were reduced to following the car to see which house it went to. Unfortunately, Rupert Murdoch had left that day to go to Australia for Christmas and he'd lent the car to a friend and colleague, Alec Mackay. So they followed the car that was taking Alec Mackay home to a house in Wimbledon and the next day back to work after Christmas, Alec came home and found his house ransacked and his wife Muriel was gone and she was never seen again. The Hussein brothers started to make ransom demands to the family they realised they'd got the wrong woman, but they obviously persisted anyway. Alec Mackay didn't have anything like that sort of money. Alec Mackay decided to use the newspapers that he was the deputy chairman of to try and help. That was the wrong thing to do. It led to huge false alarms and red herrings and time wasters and so on. But at the end of the day, uh, the police did arrest the Hussein brothers. Muriel's body was never found. They both got life for murder, and kidnapping and blackmail. Arthur was eventually transferred to a mental hospital. He died in 2007. Nizamuddin was released in 1990 and deported back to Trinidad. Neither man has ever, ever admitted any involvement in the crime or revealed where she was, if you discount Nizamuddin's recent kind of antics. That's the case in a nutshell. It was the first ever kidnapping for ransom in Britain. It was the first ransom note in Britain since the Middle Ages. Um, so modern Britain's first ever kidnapping ransom. And it was one of the first, not the first, but one of the first convictions for murder without a body being found and remains to this day one of the most extraordinary mysteries. And, and also all sorts of things about the story, which put it in its time. It was you know, two Indo-Trinidadian brothers at a time when immigration was a fairly new thing in Britain, the beginning of the Murdoch Empire and that sort of thing different era of policing, a lot of leaks from the police to the press at the time, all that sort of stuff. It's a a very rich, I mean, apart from the awful tragedy of it, it's a story very rich in history. There's so much. The Husseins lived in South Hertfordshire in a farmhouse. 
unheard of at the time for you know people from that ethnicity to be living in rural England at a time when that part of England was pretty much farmers, agricultural workers. You know, it's not like today where that area is mainly commuters and, and wealthy people. So in all sorts of ways, a really rich and bizarre uh, story. It's definitely an interesting one. And obviously I'm going to point people to your book to get the nitty gritty details of it because when I was, I was kind of, I've been listening to a few other podcasts who covered the case, been doing some research online and in, the way it was portrayed, I, I had no experience of this case. I didn't know about the Hussein brothers or anything like that. And because they portrayed themselves as this American mafia group, M3, he called himself on the phone calls. And I was like, mafia. Okay. And then a case of mistaken identity. It's, it's like a movie, isn't it, really? It is. It really is. And also, it's like a movie in other ways. I mean, there were two attempts made to trap the kidnappers um, because kidnapping is a desperate crime. And one of the problems with kidnapping is you've got to come out of the shadows to collect the money. You're always, as a criminal, putting yourself in a vulnerable position by doing that. So the first attempt to deliver the money, they had to leave the money in suitcases by the side of the road and police were there keeping a watch. Unfortunately, the operation was disastrous because so many different police forces wanted to be in on the action that you ended up with 68 carloads of detectives going up and down this road and the Hussains tweaked, you know, and that was it. It's an unfortunate scenario here. If the police had undermanned it, then it would have been a disaster if they'd taken the money and ran. But, you know, with hindsight, it was, it was a bit of a caper. But amazingly, the Hussains tried again because even though they knew that they were on borrowed time here, I think the sight of those cases at the side of the road was just too overwhelmingly tempting for them. So the second time the police decided to have a much more scaled down operation, and I have to say, although that first operation was a bit of a disaster, the operation which did bring the case to a close was extraordinarily well executed and it was incredible. And it is actually quite filmic in the sense because police officers disguised as members of the Mackay family were told to go to a phone box and wait for a call. And from there, they were then bounce to another call box and another call box and then onto a train and then all this sort of stuff. And it was quite incredible how the operation was choreographed and how the Husseins were trapped by it. It was very, very clever. So yeah, it is in that sort of sense, really, that is like a movie, I suppose, yeah. The other interesting aspect was the notes that were supposed to have come from Muriel. Yes, I mean, they made for appalling reading. Well, the the, the first letter was sent um, was sent the day after she was kidnapped. Then there were four more letters which came several weeks later, and it was quite obvious, really, that all of these letters had been written around the same time and that she was long dead by now. One of the letters that came later on said, you'll know these people when they telephone because they'll give the code word M3. Well, they'd been using the code word M3 for weeks, so that was obviously one of the first letters written and out of, out of sequence. One of the letters referred to Muriel's daughter, Diane, having been on television appealing that happened the day after the kidnapping whereas the letter arrived nearly a month later you know so she was obviously long dead by then i think she was murdered 36 hours after she i think she was murdered on the night of the 30th of december just after nine o'clock and disposed of that night but um yeah the letters are really chilling i mean one of the things is that you know nizamuddin's claims now that she was well treated and so on if muriel had been well treated she would have told her family that in the letter she would have known how frantic they would have been instead of which what she says in her first letter is what have i done to deserve this treatment which is an it's a terrible phrase i mean you just don't know what that could be referring to but it's it's not good is it you know whatever the case are we definitely happy with that she wrote these letters though we're happy yes that- Yes, definitely. The handwriting was uh, was checked and compared. Interestingly, in um, the, if you look at the first letter, and the, all the letters are reproduced in the book, I do quite a lot of 
there's a lot going into because there's only so much you can draw from them because they don't give obviously any details away of clues as to where she is or something but there are certain things that can be drawn and one thing that's interesting is that she says at the start of her first letter excuse writing i am blindfolded and cold and that top part of the letter is written in kind of squiggly lines and words running into each other and so on but there's a postscript at the bottom of the of the letter and I don't think she could have written that blindfolded because there are certain words that are underlined for emphasis. And I looked at other things that Muriel had written from her home, and she was in the habit of underlining words for emphasis and, and things. So I thought, well, she can't have been blindfolded for that part. But when you look at the envelope that the le- first letter arrived in, without any doubt at all, she was not blindfolded when she was writing that envelope. The alignment is perfect. There are unnecessary things on it, like she's put Alec Mackay, Esquire. She's put Urgent at the top of it. Each line is indented right she wasn't blindfolded for that. So the chances that she was ever going to be released are pretty remote, I would have said. You, know. you mentioned in your email, because she sent me a couple of the calls that yes. the, the kidnappers made. And in one of them, I think they were speaking to Ian and they thought it was Alec. And the call cut off early. You mentioned you might have a little nugget of something. Yes, that's there. the second call. No, they were actually speaking there to David Dyer, who was Alec's uh, son-in-law. It was right. Diane's Diane's husband. Yeah, that was the second call. It was the first one that was recorded. And it was one of the calls that's always baffled people the most because it's, I'm pretty sure it's, well, it isn't as Amadine making that call. And he doesn't even check who he's speaking to. He just launches into it, assuming he's talking to Alec and says, your wife just posted a letter to you and so on. But then he suddenly says, did you get the money? And then he puts the phone down and no one has ever known what that was all about. But I played that call to Nizamadine. It was quite eerie to be looking into his eyes as it caught, because you could actually hear, albeit 53 years later, you could hear little inflections of the voice being him. And um, I thought, if I say to him, was that you on the phone? He was just going to say no. So when the call finished, I just said to him, why did you put the phone down? And he said, someone came to the door. And I was like, that's the first time he has ever not denied making those calls, which was, you know, quite a moment. It It was interesting. But the other thing about that call that's interesting is that uh, M3 says on that call, for heaven's sake, for her sake, don't call the police. And this was nearly 24 hours after the kidnapping. So why they were still saying don't tell the police then is quite significant. And it all fits into what I think actually happened to her because it proves that they hadn't looked at any media at all since the kidnapping. I think they intended to leave a note at the scene of the crime saying, do not ring the police. But for whatever reason, that note was lost or whatever, it didn't happen. But they obviously didn't realise the police were involved. And the following day when they made that call, they didn't realise it. But at nine o'clock that night, Diane went on the BBC News and appealed for her mother's life and also said, whoever's done this doesn't know anything about money because a million pounds is ridiculous. They must have seen that broadcast because Muriel wrote a letter saying, Diane, I heard you on television. It must have been that broadcast. And I think that broadcast is what killed her. I think they realised then not only that they, they weren't going to get this money, but I think they were probably pretty incensed by being told, you know, whoever did this doesn't know anything about money. The Husseins had no alibi at all for that day, the 30th of December. But the following day, New Year's Eve, they put their faces about everywhere. So by then, she must have been gone they were rapidly trying to regain ground. the 31st was the day that the money was supposed to be paid and they never phoned the family that day so it obviously gone catastrophically wrong for them and i even though i managed to work out that they didn't have a daily newspaper delivered and and there was no television news on that they could have seen that day and so on the only thing that was in the way of this theory was but they had to drive one of them had to drive to london to post that letter 
surely they put the radio on in the car and heard one of the news bulletins. And then I checked with Scotland Yard, who had some pictures of the inside of Arthur's Volvo. There was no radio in the car. That was quite a big moment that I thought. That explains it then, because otherwise they would have heard, they would have known of the police involvement early, because it was going out on hourly news all through the day. So, Wow. It is a fascinating story. I'll have to pick up A Desperate Business by Simon. The mafia thing as well. I mean, you know, the idea they claimed, you know, this is this is the mafia here. We've got your wife. Even though it was ludicrous, there were rumours at the time that the mafia were setting up operations in Britain. So it was just possible. So the police went to the FBI because obviously the British police had no experience of dealing with kidnapping, whereas in America it's not that uncommon a crime. And the FBI were very cooperative with them and said, because they could tell from the phone calls that whoever was making these calls had a West Indian accent. And the, the FBI said there are black operatives in the mafia. They don't sound like that. They're, they're American. It won't be them. But they said also, in their opinion, these weren't professional criminals because professional criminals would never have asked for such a ludicrous sum. These would have been amateurs. And they also said, if you don't find her within 48 hours, she'll probably be dead. That's almost always what happens with kidnappers. And they were, and they were right, unfortunately. They did sound amateurish, especially on the audio you sent where they were arguing, arguing yes, the toss. that's right. I mean, that's a, that's a terrible call because you can hear on that, that that Alec Mackay is trying to reason with someone who's just got no grip on reality whatsoever. You know, yeah. It's, it's awful. And also, I mean, on some of the phone calls, Arthur Hussein resorts to saying some pretty appalling things to the family to try and get them to pay him. Some really horrible things that we know aren't true, but are just awful. I mean, he said at one point to Ian Mackay, Muriel's son, he said, after the first ransom operation had gone wrong, he said, how do you feel, Ian, knowing that the person who brought you into this world, you're responsible for her death? I mean, you know, terrible things like that, Just which more than anything would make the family all the more aware of just what horrible people that they are dealing with. And their mother was in the clutches of someone who was just so beyond compassion or pity, you know. Is it right that they were trying to speed up the process by saying, look, this is the fourth time we've done this and everyone's paid? Yes, that's right. They did. They did all sorts of claims like that. And and, and an interesting other thing that they did was that um, Arthur then tried, tried to do this thing where he tried to claim that he was actually in the clutches of this mafioso gang, but didn't really want any involvement. So he said, I'm actually trying to help you. You know, they mustn't know I'm making this call. But if you bring this money to me here, I will make sure that you get it. You know, all that kind of stuff. He was trying to, you know, and an interesting thing that happened as a result of that was that it allowed Ian Mackay, who, the son who was doing most of the negotiation with him, to have a sort of collusion with him. Because what Ian would do was say, look, we need to get the police out of the house here so that you and I can do this together. He did brilliant work on this under enormous pressure. So he was almost making a kind of collusion with Arthur. And Arthur, after that first ransom drop went wrong, Arthur said, oh, Ian, I trusted you. You know, I don't know what to say. You've let me down and all that, which was actually a sort of measure of just how, you know, how successful they sort of done that until then. And it was probably why the Husseins felt able to just ask, you know, one more time for this money. So there was some very school. The police sort of briefed him on how to conduct himself on those calls and gave him a sort of crib sheet. It's all in the, in the book. But you think when you're actually negotiating for your mother's life, and you've also got to be conscious of this script in front of you saying, try and do this don't do that quite an amazing achievement seeing as though you're such an experienced writer do you have any advice for anyone who may be up and coming or wants to get involved in whether it's true crime or even fiction books Ooh, well i mean i mean enjoy enjoy writing and enjoy words more than anything else the most important thing i mean if if someone who knew the future said to me 
you will never, ever have another piece of work published. I would still write all the time because it's just what I do. It's just, mm. you know, I can't help that. I don't feel alive unless I'm writing. I think a great deal of getting successful is knowing how to put your story out there and put it across. And, you know, when you, we all get things under us, we get obsessions with things and all that sort of stuff. And if there, if, if that happens, there's got to be a reason for that. There's something it's tapping inside us. There's something that some sensitivity in us, some fear in us, some fascination. And, and it's very good if you can kind of identify that. I mean, I find whenever I'm doing something like this, despite how big and how vast and how varied this story is, there are certain parts of it which you become more preoccupied with than others. There are particular areas of it, particular things. And that's just because of things in our makeup that they tap into and they, you know, they appeal to or, or they worry or whatever, or they connect with. And I think it's really good to actually go with that. One of the things with this story, for instance, was that this was very much to me a story about winter and Christmas. It took place over Christmas and New Year. It was one of the worst winters of the 20th century in Britain. And I always felt somehow that that was sort of really relevant to it. And that's why I knew that the cover needed to have that winter scene on it. It's a police photograph of one of the locations from the story in the snow. I always felt that that was part of the dynamic of that. And I always thought that if I was making a, a drama about this or whatever, all those shots of the police searching through those snowy fields and everything, I kept on hearing in the bleak midwinter the Christmas carol over it. There was something very tragic about that and something. So I thought... Those sort of things in your head are helping you to find the tone of voice for this, you know, for what the tone of voice is. It's like in the same way that you often have a sort of playlist when you're doing things. There's music which just keeps you in that sort of zone. And I think finding out where your where your prejudices lie and where your sensitivities lie and what particular images dominate it for you is, is really good because you can tell any story in all sorts of ways. Everybody's got their own entry points and all that. When you asked me earlier on to summarise the story briefly, I started it from a particular angle, from Murdoch's arrival in Britain and stuff like that. But there are other ways of doing that. You know, you start it with the Husseins coming to Britain or something or whatever. But that's the power you have as a writer when you're telling a story. You choose to tell it the way you want, and it's your, it's down to you. And it's everybody has their own way of doing it. And this is your book or it's your story, and you should do what you want with it. And you select which bits you put emphasis on. You make judgments on who whose information you're going to trust and who's not. But I think trusting your own voice and enjoying exploring your own vision of it is what makes it interesting. And it makes it yours as opposed to anybody else's. The last thing you want is a sort of nondescript account that anybody could have written. I mean, I know that whoever had written this book, whoever had written a book about this case, it wouldn't be this book. Only I could write this book because this is as much about me as it's the case. That's the thing. You want your own voice in there and your own sensitivities. If you could go back in time, give yourself one piece of advice, what would you tell yourself? Um, I think probably don't hang around so much. When you're starting off, you have a lot of insecurity about rejection. I was talking to some students a while ago, and one of them said, how do you cope with rejection? And I said, well, it doesn't get any easier. I mean, an actor once said that writers, actors have got to be half in love with rejection. You get more rejections than Jehovah's Witnesses. And writers are the same. You've got to get used to that. But there are certain things that you can do to countermand that. One of them is that you, nobody ever said it was going to be easy. You have to accept the world doesn't owe you a living. You know? One of the things also is that a good piece of advice was given to me years ago by a, a great friend of mine, no longer with us, called Watham, who was a wonderful director. And I had had a piece of work rejected that I was really, really devoted to and he said listen everybody in this business works for themselves 
And if a producer doesn't want to do your piece or a publisher doesn't want to publish it, it's not necessarily because it's no good. It's because it's not the direction that they see their career path leading in. And that's absolutely right. If I was a film producer and the best sci-fi script in the world landed on my desk, I still wouldn't want to do it because I'm not interested in science fiction particularly. So it's not because it's a load of rubbish or something. So you have to always be philosophical about rejection and stuff as well. And a lot of time you'll find people sort of saying, well, I don't really want to send it because someone will just steal the idea. They're not. They're not going to do that. It's just excuses because you're frightened of letting something go and having to be faced with someone telling you that your baby is unwanted. But the other bit of advice that I always give to rising students as well is that when you come up with a good idea or something like that, there's a great tendency to be in the pub with your friends and to say, I've got this great idea. And you tell them it and they say, oh, yeah, that's a fantastic idea. And what actually happens is you never end up actually writing it. And the reason you never end up writing it is because you are, you've got so used to having that wonderful immediate reaction from people in the pub saying to you, that's fantastic. You think, I'm never going to top that. Never going to get anything as good as that. So you've had your moment, you've had your standing ovation, and you've over-talked it to the point that you think, I don't think I can do this justice now. And it ends up just going by the wayside. So don't over-talk it, write it, don't talk it. I like it. So we've got this book coming out. By the time this comes out, the book will be, it comes out in October 27th, I think. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So it's probably out when this episode's out. I'm going to link it in the description of this. So please, oh, please you. pick it up. Anything else in the pipeline? I know you're probably always thinking ahead, years ahead. Any further cases you might look into or what stuff have you got coming up for us? Well, I mean, in the immediate pipeline will actually be all the sort of the, the afterlife of this, because obviously you get, you know, contacts from people who are interested in taking it further and documentaries or whatever and that sort of thing. And you obviously do quite a lot of promotion and that sort of thing for it. So it'll take a while before I could settle into something else. But I, I do, I would like to do something else. There was actually another case that I'd always wanted to write a book about, but unfortunately that is being done by some at the moment. But that's fair enough. That's, that's the way it goes. Um, so I don't know yet. You see, what you're always looking for is something which is going to consume you in the same way. And you have to really be selective. That you, you know, I was asked to do something a while ago and I just said, I can't get excited about that. I can't get excited. I mean, my publisher said to me when he was, we were doing this at one point about six months ago when everything was just going all guns blazing and he said to me, you will never have another project like this. He was absolutely right. Never will. There'll be other ones that will be different, but there'll never be one like this. I mean, to be re-examining a 53-year-old case and then for it to be reopened while you're looking into it is an extraordinary thing to happen you know and also because the story felt to me even back in the 80s to have belonged to such a different age to suddenly be in a room with people who were there at the time talking to me is really extraordinary you know but I mean everybody's been very cooperative and surviving police officers and all sorts of people involved in this there was about 90 interviews or something in the end some people who'd never actually spoken about it before so that was really it takes quite a long while to climb down off that kind of horse, really, and, you know, sort of get your, your mind ready for something else. I'm writing a novel, which I'm going to go back to after this as well, something, you know, flexing a different muscle like that. So we'll see. We'll see what happens next. But I think the other thing I would just say on this is that when I was doing this, I took a view that every piece of paper was potentially valuable every piece of paper connected with this story was potentially valuable and that included things like petrol receipts and statements from people who said they hadn't seen anything and so a a great deal of time was spent just mapping and plotting every piece of information and amazingly what actually happened was that even the most insignificant pieces of information suddenly started to help build up a clearer picture of things and 
I'll give you a quick example of this if you want, actually. It's never been established which day the Husseins followed that Rolls-Royce back to Wimbledon. Just something that had never really been looked at before, probably because it wasn't particularly important. But I just wanted to know if it was possible to identify that. So they went to the vehicle registration department on the 19th of December, Friday the 19th, to try and get the address of the Rolls-Royce, and they failed to do so. They can't have followed the Rolls-Royce that day because Murdoch was still using it. He went away to Australia on the Saturday. They must have followed the car on the Monday, the 22nd of December, because on the Tuesday morning, Arthur took his car into a petrol uh, garage to get it serviced. He probably wanted to get it match fit for the kidnapping. The following day was Christmas Eve. They can't have followed it on Christmas Eve because Alec came home from work at 2pm on Christmas Eve. And at 2pm on Christmas Eve, the Husseins were in the pub at Burden. And while they were there, a local farmer saw them and said, I've got your turkey for Christmas that you ordered. They went back to his farm at that point to collect it. So that's them accounted for at 2pm on Christmas Eve. So the only day they could have followed that car was that Monday the 22nd. Why is that important? It's important for two reasons. One is it shows you how little preparation that there was for this crime. And secondly, it sort of feeds in a little bit to my theory that on the 29th of December, the next working day, the day of the kidnapping, I don't think that they necessarily set out that day to kidnap her. I think they set out to look at the house, to try and wreck it, to get an idea of the movements of the family. And then they saw the opportunity and said, right, let's just do it now. So in all sorts of odd ways, little things like garage receipts and a farmer's receipt for a turkey in a weird sort of way just helped to potentially solve one little one little question never dismiss the smallest thing eh? that's that's right absolutely you know and it's, and it's enormous fun to be you know, putting those bits of, i mean was aware of course that it's such a terrible thing but i i always thought I, I was a long time before i actually was in contact with the Mackay family because i didn't know how this sat with them that they hadn't made any public appearances since since 1970 i didn't know if this was something that was still an active thing for them or something they tried to to shut away so i decided i would never bother them with my questions unless i could offer them some answers to theirs and so and obviously at the end of it there's been a little bit of news coverage of this this week that the question more than anything else we've always wanted answered is where is muriel buried and when you're involved in something like this you have that fantasy you're going to find that piece of paper which has slipped through a gap that no one's ever seen before and it holds the answer it holds the key you know it's like jack the ripper's diary or whatever or someone's confession and amazingly i mean i still can't quite believe this happened but i did potentially find that piece of paper and this one piece of paper which where arthur hussein says where he buried her which no police officer had ever seen nobody had ever seen the family had never seen nobody you know, and I obviously checked it to the nth degree and it still held water. It was the one theory that I just could not disprove. And so there came that moment of sitting down with the Mackay family and saying, look, it might all be rubbish, but all I can say is this is interesting. This just might be an answer. You know, that's it. It's an extraordinary moment. And it's a, and at least it's a moment of some sort of closure to end the book on to say this hasn't been seen for it. It's an extraordinary feeling to suddenly have a new piece of information after you know, 53 years. That was an extraordinary moment. Ah, good stuff. Well, I'm looking forward to reading it. Hopefully my listeners do as well. It's been a pleasure speaking to you, Simon. Thank you, and to you. Just a reminder, it's called A Desperate Business, The Murder of Muriel Mackay. It came out October 27th, 2022. Please give it a read. Any final thoughts before we close out for the day? Well, just to say that, um, I mean, thank you very much for your interest. And um, I think 
more than anything else, I suppose, with a story like this, it became clearer and clearer to me at the end that even, even though it offers some solutions, it offers some answers. I'm not, I'm not claiming that everything I've said is 100% definitely. Everybody can make up their own mind. I've had my say now. But the one thing that really is so clear at the end of it is even, even if every single thing is answered, even if her body was found one day or whatever, none of it actually can ever really provide closure because nothing can atone for the question that there's no answer to, which is why some people do appalling things to other people. And my dad, I know when he was investigating the railway murders, he went to the family of one of the victims when he took over the case. He said, look, I will do everything in my power to find whoever did this. There's one thing I can never do, and that's bring your child back. And he said that, I think, because he had observed over the years, as a, as a good old pro, he had observed that sometimes the families of people who have uh, lost their lives to crime, they look at the investigation and think that when this is solved, everything will be all right again. When the perpetrators are imprisoned, it'll all be okay. And in fact, then they suddenly realise afterwards, oh my God, this is nothing's changed this is awful nothing can atone for it so even if she was found or whatever there's never going to be any good answer to anything like this ever happening and that's the awful thing that these things just endure on a crime committed against one person has countless victims onto the next generation it's the worst thing that the human being can can create it's a, it's a crime so at the end of it you are left with that awful pathos that however much you do and you, you know you want to try and just do your little bit to help in some way nothing's really going to make this absolutely so it's been a pleasure speaking to you as i say i really appreciate your time for everyone listening please check out the new book a desperate business simon farker until next time you'll hear a proper episode for me this coming thursday if this comes out on a monday until then as we always say cheerio